0: Well, where have you all of you guys come from? California, California, next door. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> California, that's a perfect spot. So you had a long. Did you come yesterday? Or you come. California. Yeah, wonderful. Whereabouts in California? Great. Suffering for the Lord there in Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to do it. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know a better place to suffer myself. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. Well, I'm going to just wait. I think people were just a touch late and maybe wait one more minute. How's that? If if you folks, uh, if there's a lot of dentists in here, you may not want to be here. I don't don't want to chase you away, but but basically uh, what I'm doing is is giving a presentation for uh, non-dentists who who really get caught often on the mission field without uh, a wish or a promise, as they say, (laughs) and and how, how you might be able to help. In some of these situations, and get a better idea of what's going on. And I know when I was, uh, let me just turn things on here. I know when I was at uh, the University of Vermont and uh, teaching our med students and and uh, in the surgical core program uh, with our surgeons, they used to say. Uvula back, I know all about, but don't show me anything in front of the uvula because I don't know anything about that. You know, they're just white things there that uh, around in your jawbone. So it's one of those great things to. Um, and then a number of missionaries that have been very close friends of mine over the years uh, have always mentioned that the the need for dentists on the mission field, uh, not. Part time, but full time is enormous. Uh, many of the countries where we were in, like Liberia, has uh, maybe three for one dentist for three million people. There's only three people, uh, three dentists in the whole country. And so it's really a very uh, Sort of depleted supply, and when we have our missionary docs out there, it's so important that they understand. Hey, boy, the the need is great, uh, so we need to to pray for more laborers in the vineyard. Okay, well let's let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings today. We thank you for your grace and your guidance in our lives. Thank you for those who have come, and Lord, we pray that uh, their hearts would be uh, opened and, and receptive to what you have for them during this conference. We thank you for the privilege of being here together of one heart, of one accord, and that is to be a blessing to you today. We uh, look forward to what you have for us. We open our hearts to you, and we ask all these things that you might be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the first things uh, that we wanted to, to talk about is the, the dental, uh, the tooth. And 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 all of you probably have heard a bit about, you know, the developmental anatomy or, or taken some of those kinds of things. You may not know today that we're working extensively with uh adult stem cells from uh, removed third molars from the periodontal ligament areas and from uh, undifferentiated mesenchymal (coughs) cells from the the marrow. And uh, to this point have really developed some regeneration capacity of bone, of tooth, and so forth from these adult stem cells without a lot of the overgrowth that we have. What we have to do now is confine them and. And, and work with the triggers that will help that, th- those areas develop. So it's a very interesting area. This, this area here is the periodontal membrane. Most people think the bone maybe attaches to the root of the tooth, but there is a membrane that, that goes, you know, around and, and actually physically attaches to the tooth, holds it in, in, in integrity, and actually acts as a little uh, uh, sort of cap for the gingival tissue as it attaches uh, down in this, in this area with the fibers and then the, the, the gingival tissue uh, aside of that. As that develops and, and we start to have some problems, uh, this is where uh, you come into play and where there are some significant things that, that cause problems for us. And, and one of these is, is decay. And, and here's a perfect example of, of decay. It, it gets into the tooth. It goes into the, the nerve of the tooth, uh, which, which we call the dental pulp. And when that happens, you, start, you develop an infection that is down in the bone. And, uh, and, and when, that, when that occurs, uh, you can save a tooth. And, and all of you are aware of that. The treatment for an infected tooth, an abscessed tooth from decay is to remove the infected portion of the tooth, which is the nerve. So you can do that by taking the whole tooth out, or you can do it by removing just the nerve. And that's what we often hear about in terms of root canal therapy, where you you take the nerve and you instrument the tooth and you do root canal therapy. But uh, once you have that infection... At, at the end of the root. Now we are in, in a problem. Obviously, a tooth that has an infected nerve cannot be restored in that condition. You can't fill it or, or do anything in that way. And one of the ways that we tell if a tooth is abscessed is through percussion. Percussion is a, is a, is a very reliable way to, to sort of tell with a, with a firm instrument, the handle of a mirror or or something, um, a dental mirror will will elicit a response of pain because the inflammation process has gone periapically, has gone right to the end of the root. And when you put pressure on that, the inflammation and the swelling causes pain, transmitted, and the patient says, whoa. And, And you might even see the tooth loosen up a little bit. So mobility of the tooth can be somewhat of a reliable factor when we see that. Uh, an area or tooth with deep decay. The tooth is sensitive to percussion. And then as this goes on, the patient is uh, eliciting some other signs of infection. And the first sign is cellulitis. Cellulitis is when there is a, a, an infection in the soft tissue, which causes swelling and edema and redness and heat, all the kinds of things that we normally see you know, with, it, with infections, uh, that, that kind of swelling, and if you look at, at, at this little guy, you, you can see there, there is pain, there is swelling, there is redness, and a, at times, this cellulitis will become extensive, and it can go into the fascial planes and, and cause a person to have trismus. Now, trismus is the inability to open widely. It affects the muscles and and, uh, causes you to not be able to open your mouth widely. And and that makes for a significant problem if you're trying to get in there and trying to examine or or take a tooth out, obviously. But uh, it's not unusual to see this this tremendous swelling because uh, actually the infection is caused by streptococci. And streptococci uh, tend to have the streptokinase that breaks down, that causes the spreading factor, that causes the infection and, and, the, and the tissue to swell greatly. And uh, after that cellulitis is present for a few days and you have not been able to take care of it or they have not been able to take care of it, the next thing that happens would be for that cellulitis to, to turn into an abscess. There would be actually breakdown in the tissue where the infection is spread from the bone, where we saw that, through the, through the bone into the soft tissue. And now it's just not a spread of, of, of infection from bacteria and the organisms, but they have gotten the upper hand and you have the localization of an abscess formation. And with an abscess formation, you need to drain the abscess. I mean, there, that, that is, is very critical. And, and so uh, it, it can be a very localized abscess, uh, like, like this gentleman possesses with, uh, you know, up, up under his lip that's related to, to a tooth. And, and the drainage of that, of that kind of abscess will give a considerable amount of, of relief. I mean, there's there uh, the, there's the buildup of suppuration, but the difficulty is, now, how do you get it numb? Do you realize that, of course, an abscess is very acid? You have the big breakdown products, you have bacteria, and it's a very acid kind of environment. And And basically what we need to do is... anesthetize it, and there's only two ways to do that. Now, one way is to use a block anesthetic away from the area of infection because a local anesthetic is, is what? Is a basic salt, and the area of abscess is acid. Now, if you inject into the area of where an abscess is, you not only neutralize the local anesthetic, but you spread the infection. So you don't want to do that. That's not a good idea. But one of the techniques that you can use in that situation, and let me sort of show you that, is this. If you notice in this particular area, there's a real blanching of the tissue that is over that abscess cavity. That is a local infiltration of anesthetic that is not in the abscess cavity but is in the soft tissue that, that's outside you still have a pretty acid condition but and a good indication that you do are getting good at anesthetic is a blanching of the of that of that area and of course local anesthetics like xylocaine usually the ones that we use would have 1 to 100,000 epinephrine and that is a sort of helps with the hemostasis but it also retains the anesthetic in an area of being very vascular for a longer time. So you get a little more effect of the anesthetic. So when you inject in that area, you you can get a blanching, and and that actually, that blanching will transfer to enough anesthetic for you to uh, be able to do an incision and drainage. At that point, if you make your incision into that area, you can then take the rest of the anesthetic that's in your syringe and go into the abscess cavity and flush it out. Use it as an irrigant because that area will flush out and also you'll get a little more anesthetic. What you want to do when there is an abscess cavity is complete drainage and then, if possible, put a drain in there so that it will continue to drain while you use antibiotics to take away the infection. Because now you have two problems. You have, one, a tooth, which, which caused infection. But, and, and the infection has gone from the bone out into the tissue, and it's not only just an, an inflammation and a spread of infection, which is cellulitis, it has localized into an abscess cavity. Which, and, and once that happens, the abscess cavity will not go away. Let's say that we were able to do a block anesthetic on a lower tooth and take that tooth out. That would not solve the patient's problem completely because there still is infection in the soft tissue that, that is spread outside of the bone, and, and there is an excellent chance that that soft tissue infection or abscess cavity could continue to, to fester and and, and it's not going to go away. So the treatment for an abscess is incision and drainage. And, and so that's the important discernment that you need to make in, in that area. And, and basically, once you create the opening for the abscess, you want to make sure that that opening is complete. In other words, sometimes these abscess cavities can be loculated so you want to go out into the abscess cavities to make sure that the loculations are, are gone and that you then have the opportunity to put a drain or something in there that will allow that uh, area to, to drain for a period of time while you then give the patient antibiotics. So that's, that's an important thing. You can use a little piece of Penrose drain or you can use... Uh, Iotaform gauze, or there's a number of things that you can use. Uh, you can use a little piece of your uh, of a glove, and and put a little uh, sort of feathering on it, so that it, it there's something in there that sort of keeps it from just sliding out. But those kind of things will will do that. If if uh, and one of the tricks of putting a drain in, particularly in those kind of areas, is that if it's a round drain like that, you can put it in in that way. But the other one is to take that same sort of hemostat and stretch the drain over the edge. In other words, you know, like a balloon, push on it, stretch it, push it into the, and then release it. And that releasing of the pressure will just allow you to take the instrument out and and the drain will stay at the deepest point of that kind of abscess cavity. But that's really what you want to do in terms of, of that. When you have a smooth drain, it can easily work its way out and and so forth. That's one of the difficulties when we're on the mission field sometimes and we don't see patients routinely for follow up. And if you look at at what some of the problems are as we read the literature from the New England Journal of Medicine and many other areas, they say, you know, short term missions are terrible. There's no follow up, there's no referrals. Patients, People are doing things that they're not trained to do or they don't have demonstrated competence in doing, and and it's creating more problems. And unfortunately, that often happens. So we need to be very conscious of when these things occur that there are uh, sort of some people on the medical side or on the dental side that are available to sort of follow up on a patient that has some of these problems. This this is a very simple kind of of problem with an abscess, but when that abscess cavity breaks through and where it breaks through is dependent upon the position of the root and the thickness of the bone. So here is another area where the bone is very, very thick, an abscess has occurred, but now it has gone in the submandibular area. So once that happens, we're dealing with another problem. The fascial planes that that are in the submandibular area are freely communicating posteriorly, and when they get to the parapharyngeal area are open to the mediastinum. So there are some very serious problems that can occur by not properly treating aggressively uh, infections that are resident in the floor of the mouth. And, And so here's what we're actually looking at here is a situation so we understand now from from the anatomy how this how this occurs and in the anatomy this is the mylohyoid muscle which forms against the medial aspect of the mandible and and the below that is the platysma muscle so this is in the submandibular space and uh, and and with that as that travels you know posteriorly you can also get some trismus and and the thing that we often have called Ludwig's angina, you know. So it, it's a very serious thing when we see those kind of patients and we want to make sure they, have, they may have difficulty swallowing, they, have, uh, they may be drooling, they have a swelling under, underneath their mandible, and it's a very painful kind of situation. So again, as we look at these things, you can see that sort of an infected mandibular tooth can give you a cellulitis that that involves the inner part of of the cheek area and an abscess in that area. We call it a vestibular abscess in the vestibule of the mouth. It can go out to the cheek area and give you a facial abscess. So that even, and many times in developing countries, you'll see patients who have had those infections for a long period of time. And they've seen their shaman or their witch doctor or, or maybe even a physician, and and when you see swelling around the head or neck, on the mission field, think toothache or tooth problem, because often that's what the story is. So uh, those kind of conditions and those situations, um, someone I&Ds it to get rid of the abscess, but they haven't gotten rid of the problem because the tooth is still there and then it keeps draining. So... Uh, we can also then see it go into the floor of the mouth, in the submandibular area, below the submandibular gland. And then in the maxilla, it can go into the sinus. So it, 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 often there's only a thin layer of bone between that root and the sinus. So infection proceeds into the sinus, and that kind of a patient would, would may exhibit tenderness to multiple teeth in the maxilla. Because now all the teeth in that maxillary area are are, uh, either affected by the cellulitis and the the irritation to the Schneiderian membrane of the sinus, or uh, there, in fact, is is, uh, suppuration that's gone into the maxillary sinus. Once the maxillary sinus becomes infected, the little cilia flow, you remember in your anatomy, the maxillary sinus is not a dependent draining sinus it drains superiorly into the uh, medial uh, ostia area of the nose. And uh, if if the uh, sinus is infected and the membrane of the sinus loses its ciliated flow, you end up with not only a swollen maxillary sinus area, which occludes the opening, but you end up with damaged cilia flow. And now that it's not a dependent draining sinus anymore, so you can have a patient with chronic sinusitis even after the infection is, is gone. So so that's a problem. And it can go out into the cheek or it may even go into the palate. P- a person may look like they have a benign tumor of the, of the palate area because they have the swelling and tenderness up in the palate area. You may think, well, goodness, they have a benign mixed tumor or something in the, in the palate. But that's, that, that is also one of the things that we see. And then The other thing that a very dangerous area is uh, what we call uh, the pericoronal area of an impacted or retained third molar. Um, Often there isn't enough room for the third molar to come in completely, and, and that tissue around that, it forms like a little hood around that wisdom tooth. It's warm, it's dark, it's moist, and the next thing you know, it's an excellent area for culture media to start, and, and a little like abscess develops and someone is very uncomfortable. Now the difficulty there is it gets back into the pterygoid space very quickly, causes trismus, inability to open the mouth, and significant pain and infection that can go down the fascial planes even into the neck. So, uh, when, when, And a peritonsillar abscess can also develop from that kind of, a, of an abscess around a, a third molar. And and in those cases, uh, where there is no good attached tissue, firmly attached tissue around there, just cutting the tissue away will not usually help a great deal because you need firm and good attached tissue around the wisdom tube. So just sort of saying, well, I'll just trim that tissue away over top of it is not always a good answer because it it will constantly be a problem with with infection or the tooth may be traumatized by an upper tooth that's actually biting on the the gum tissue. So um, that's not a very good thing. And when we deal with uh, most of the people in the developing uh, world, we can see uh, two main problems. We see the dental problem, the dental component that we've talked about with decay, and then there is also the periodontal problem where uh, oral hygiene is not a, is not a prominent thing, uh, we, and, and preventive dental care is not known well. And so we really don't have people doing good oral hygiene, and then we get inflammation of the gingival tissue, buildup of, of calculus and tartar around the teeth. And that really, that infection uh, continues to go uh, and progress, until actually the person will lose the tooth. I mean, it is so loose they'll be able to take it out themselves. It's, it's very painful. And, and if they bite on it, the tooth easily moves. But I mean, from a visualization standpoint, you'd be able to know the difference. I mean, the, the, the tissue is very red, easily bleeding, and, uh, and characterized by the black tartar often that you'll see sort of around the tooth and all. And that's just laden with bacteria that's gone down not only the side of the root, but removed bone support from the tooth, so eventually the tooth will will loosen and and come out. So it is a very, as the infection proceeds apically or proceeds towards the end of the tooth and and the tooth loosens up, there are also uh, lateral canals from the nerve that go out the side of the root. So the apical Infection that's progressing can also cause the tooth to become infected uh, in, in the in the in the pulpal area too. So it's a it is a serious problem as as we look at that and uh, and some teeth after a long period of time will will sort of develop uh, a chronic fistula. In other words, they will drain suppuration infection, and the patient will have no discomfort because now the infection isn't building up. As it builds up, it will chronically drain, and, and you can see the swelling, you can see the redness, you can see that opening where it's draining, and, and you can understand that, wow, this, this is chronically draining, and that's why the patient no longer has discomfort. The pressure is building up and, and, and sort of spontaneously draining this is, this is an example of a, of a patient that uh, has had uh, a number of INDs of, of a facial abscess. Uh, but the problem is not the facial abscess. I mean, that's been the presentation. But the difficulty is that this person had an infected tooth. He had developed an abscess. It fistulated many times. And every time he would go to see the doctor, he'd have an IND done, which, which basically... Uh, just opened it up and let, you know, the, the area drain. But the, the cause, the root cause, as we would say, <coughs> was, ne- was never gotten to. And so we need to get to the root of the problem. And here's a lovely young lady that, that had, didn't ha- has never had an IND. But you can see that she has a fistula and an abscess formation from chronic drainage. And, and basically... The first thing we want to do is get get the infected tooth out, get her on some antibiotics, and then we can do a revision of that area with the depressed fistula if for cosmetic and and other reasons, and and, and that, that would be fine. But you sure don't want to do that while there is some swelling and where there is some infection there. And here's another fella who's got the worst case of acne I've ever seen. No. He's, he's got the same, he's got the basically the same problem there, and, uh, you know, if we, if we look at him closer, let me get that off of there. If you if you go over there you'll see that this is interesting cuz often we don't have an x-ray but here's a tooth that uh, basically one would say it's an abscess tooth and abscess teeth don't get don't get uh, caries do they they everyone here here's an individual that not only that but is is in danger of a pathologic fracture of the mandible because of all the chronic infection and and trying to get around there. And that, that's why I say, you know, a lot of dentists, they don't want to go on the field because other than having poor lighting and no x-rays and no suction, uh, it, it's, it's a very challenging environment. So something like this would be maybe on the field fairly hard to sort of understand. What, why, why did this person have this fistula down here at the end of the mandible? But if you take an x-ray... You can see that that's a very, uh, very interesting sort of complication in an infected tooth, and, and I have seen uh, impacted teeth that, that uh, you know, had had an opening form and eventually became decayed. That's interesting X-ray because there are some other entities that cause destruction of tooth, uh, which we call internal resorption, but that's not this this particular problem here. This is a an infected tooth in, in that area with a, a... So there's no monkeying around on these kind of things. You see what I mean? We, we, Mickey says so. So we, we've got to uh, deal with some of these problems in, in a very effective way, and they can be the periodontal abscess, the, the abscess on the, the gums from the, the, the structure around the tooth. They can be the abscess periapical from the tooth decay, and, and the formation of an abscess in addition to that. Well, how are we going to do some, some local anesthesia? Uh, most of our local anesthetics today are, are and, and we have one that's called Articane, which is really a, an excellent uh, anesthetic for soft tissue and particularly for young children because we can, can uh, it, it's put out by Septident, but Articane also has some other uh, uh, production uh, with other companies. It is a a great infiltration anesthetic. Its coefficient of of, uh, absorption is great, so it passes through bone well. And when you get to the lower jaw, and and particularly children, uh, and you want to make sure you have profound anesthetic and you don't want to, to do a block anesthetic where their whole lip is going to be numb and tongue and everything, uh, the infiltration with uh, articane or septicane is a great, uh, great uh, anesthetic. And, and so the dental uh, needle itself uh, is put on to a syringe, and, and it's really nice to be able to have that because Uh, Any of the Lurlock syringes that you use, the 2 or 3 cc locks, will not allow you to put a needle that's 27 gauge and long enough on it well. So this gives you the opportunity of using a 27 gauge long needle, which is necessary for blocks. And and so the dental kind of anesthetic is is very helpful. And, And all of the anesthetics... Uh, that, that fit into the, the syringe are uh, in little cartridges 1.8 ml in, in the cartridge and it fits right in and there's a, you can aspirate with it and, and that's all you need to do you don't have to draw up or, or anything it's really a very very handy way to do blocks the other thing is not only does it give you the long needle for uh, blocks but it also allows you to do extraoral blocks. In other words, you can use this this needle very effectively to do second division blocks intraorally or extraorally. Now let me explain to you a little bit about that and why you you might want to 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 go ahead and, and do that. Um, so that's the the information that, that you need as far as an anesthetic. There are some wonderful actually books and interactive CD-ROMs that are put out regarding dental local anesthetic. And uh, one of the most important things for us to know is, as we look at these, that there are two needle sizes. One is short, you can see, and one is long. The long needle uh, is is a thicker needle. It's a 27-gauge needle. You can get them thicker than that. (coughs) About 27 is the proper uh, gauge for block anesthetics and also allows you to aspirate to make sure you're not in a large vessel. And the other needle, if you look at it, is a much thinner needle. It's a 30-gauge needle. So that gauge needle is, is very good for what we call infiltration, when we're going to, to place an anesthetic against the bone near a tooth that we're going to remove. And that would be, for example, in the case of the maxillary arch. The bone is much more porous in the maxilla than it is in the mandible. The mandible is a very dense bone. So really, from from cuspid to cuspid area, uh, you know, it's possible to infiltrate and get some reasonable uh, local anesthetic. If you infiltrate, uh, in, the, in the mandible, in that area, and use, like, articaine, you can get a, a pretty good local anesthetic uh, effect. And, and that's really what you, what you want to do. If, on the other hand, uh, you're going to do a number uh, of teeth, then you would profit greatly by using a block anesthetic. And, and, and I'll show you a little bit about about that area. The other thing that's nice about the, the short needle, that 30-gauge short needle, is that you can use the 30-gauge short needle to do uh, what we call an intraligamentary injection. In other words, in that area between the tooth and the bone, when you take that fine needle and go down adjacent to the root, of the tooth and actually go between the root of the tooth and the bone, and then with pressure exert and, and uh, put the anesthetic into that area. You don't need an awful lot, but you do need to place, uh, you know, like a, a number of drops of that anesthetic <coughs> in that area. And it will anesthetize the root of that tooth. When you have some problems getting good local anesthetic, it's a good supplement to the local anesthetic. We call it interligamentary injection, and it can be done with special uh, uh, syringes that we have that are almost like a gun. And you, you just put that it down into that space, and and you pull greatly, and and you you can force some anesthetic into that. Space and, and it gives you local anesthetic for that tooth alone. So it is a, a possibility to supplement your local anesthetic in that way. <coughs> the uh, the syringe has a you know has a little uh, uh, cap on the end and it had it looks like on on one end. If you look at it, it looks like a multi dispensing. Uh, bottle that we use like for uh, dexamethasone or any of the multi-dose vials and that actually is the portion that goes through that the, the needle part as you put that in the syringe and the other uh, is a cap a little a little uh, rubber cap at the end and that will actually slide down and that's what will allow the anesthetic to, to take place so that's it, it's very 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 uh, straightforward. In the in the mandible, we the the, the nerve is located very deep and very uh, 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 to to the bone, and you cannot deposit local anesthetic outside of that of the nerve and and uh, expect the bone to allow conduction to to give you anesthetic. So really, that's why we do a mandibular block. Anesthesia for for the lower, and and the person feels numbness on the lip and the chin area. Usually, the corner of the mouth goes numb early. All of you who've had anesthetic know what what that is, uh, and and it's very important because we actually get the nerve before as it comes into the lingula on the lingual aspect of the, of the mandible. And and the greatest curvature, I'll show you that, of the mandible is a trademark and a sort of an area where you need to to look as a landmark. But if you were to infiltrate, let's say this is a young child and and the nerve, uh, the bone is not as dense and it's very much more easy to get a local anesthetic uh, infiltration. You still need to get anesthesia on the lingual side. And so it is extremely important to go ahead and, and infiltrate the anesthetic on the lingual side as well as what we call the buckle side or the cheek side when you're giving an anesthetic. We, in the process of, of doing local anesthetics in the block, uh, have much less of, of a problem uh, because actually the lingual nerve comes out of the, of the lingula and, and goes in the lingual. So when we do a mandibular block, that lingual nerve can be anesthetized with the same anesthetic as we use for the block. So we just infiltrate a little bit more as we come out to take care of that part of it. But there is also what we call the long buckle nerve, which is uh, the, the nerve that comes out Along the, the long buccal surface, you can see here the, the mandibular uh, branch, and we see the lingual branch coming down and, and then branching off for the, for the lingual and the mylohyoid down in here. Interestingly enough, the mylohyoid nerve that comes down this way also can carry some sensory fibers that innervate often in the third molar area. So you can give great anesthetic and get all the symptoms of good anesthesia, and when someone is having a wisdom tooth out, uh, they're saying, oh, you're hurting me, and, and you are, because that that mylohyoid nerve has carried a supplementary nerve innervation to that area. So uh, it, it get, as you get back to that third molar area, it gets a little bit more complicated for our anesthetics and, and and that's why the oral surgeon takes the easy way out and puts his patient to sleep. <laughs> they don't have any pain that way, you know. So um, basically, uh, knowing uh, the anatomy, knowing that the maxilla is much more porous and will allow us to infiltrate both on, the, on what we call the buccal or, or, or areas and also the lingual, Area, We need to place a little anesthetic on the lingual side. That holds true, lingual meaning tongue side or the palate, uh, and, and we need to do the same thing in the, in the mandible. Are you, are you doing this right by the tooth that you're going to take out, or is it someplace farther back that's like where it's coming? Well, i tell you what I like to do. I hate to hurt patients, and uh, if you, uh, the, the, post, the uh, posterior palatine foramen, brings some nerves that that come forward. And if you look at the attached tissue uh, in so the, palate, the posterior palate. It it is around the second it's around the, the the first molar area in the palate. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the attached tissue, that is really mm-hmm. firm connected tissue. It's part of the tissue that if we were doing a cleft palate repair, we would go across some of that hard firm tissue to reflect it down. The uh, just below that is some sort of over that area is a softer, more freely mobile tissue. It's still bound down quite a bit. But if we sort of use a little topical anesthetic and inject into that area, it won't be painful. It, It really is well tolerated, and you can put a little bit more in there. But if you have to inject with force, into the attached tissue, you will not make your patient a happy camper. You know what I'm saying? So it, it, it will be, in other words, very much more painful. So I try and use topical anesthetic, and I also, particularly in developing countries, realize most patients have never been to a dental office before, young or old, in many areas. So I like to use what we call vocal-local And vocal local means that you are really uh, explaining everything through your interpreter if you have to or whatever that you're going to do and that this is going to be a a little uncomfortable or it's going to pinch or whatever. Patients hate, hate surprises. And remember, everything you say beforehand is an explanation. Anything you say afterwards is an excuse. So, I mean, the nice thing is to say, Okay. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what you're, is, is this okay? And, and so forth. And get their understanding, and then you know, you try and proceed. Because uh, you know, we sort of take for granted that they understand even needles and syringes and all this is pretty mind-boggling and pretty scary. And I'm just amazed how well they do in those conditions. But uh, I think that's an important a very important aspect. And as I said, there's a lot of great uh, books on dental local anesthetic. And and I think I've listed, you know, some of that there. But here is the the lingula. This is the condyle. This is looking at the posterior part of the mandible. This is the lingula where the nerve comes down. And and basically that's where the uh, inferior alveolar nerve, Goes down into the mandible, and the mandible is extremely dense in those in, in those areas. So it's it's very important that as we do uh, our, our local anesthetic, that we use as a as a guide this what we call external oblique ridge, which is that external area of the mandible, and its greater curvature will line up well with with where the lingula is and if you palpate that and and you go back gently from what we call the bicuspid area across you will easily be able to to get you know to, to that area for a block anesthetic and and we would actually slowly infiltrate as you go forward when you reach uh, and you feel the bone if if you haven't uh, sort of entered at least uh, you know over half of what that your length of needle is you are probably hitting the bone way up in this in this area you need to to slightly back off and turn your syringe towards the same side that you're working so that you can pass the bone and go into that sort of concavity that is the best place to to place it there are some other techniques of local anesthetic blocks but uh, that is a, is a very simple technique. It's a very, it's a very easy uh, technique to use. Block all the way up to the and it will block all the way up to the incisor tooth. That's right. And that's one of the things, too, if you, if you have someone that comes into your, to the uh, clinic and, and they say, you know, I have bilateral pain. That's not anatomic. You either have something on both sides or... You know, it, it, it's, it raises a, a little question as to, to what you have. Because usually, uh, as I said, everything follows that anatomic basis and you're, you're looking at a unilateral uh, numbness. And, and usually, you'll, you know, the person will start to feel some tingling or numbness on the corner of the lip first, and then it'll become really profound. And, and here's a, a sort of a look at a, at a wisdom tooth. And here's that external oblique ridge that's coming up that you can palpate through the tissue easily and, and, and sort of get a look where the lingula is. But you can also see how that's, that ridge sticks out. So that's why you have to enter from the opposite side and then gently infiltrate and, if necessary, step around that bone so you can go oh, into that. Uh, this this would be I mean basically what you would do is to place place a thumb or a finger in there so this is the greatest curvature right in that right in that area. And, and then as you angled in with your finger as a landmark and you're going in at the turgomandibular raffe where, where the uh, buccinator you know muscle comes across and the turgoid superior constrictor comes out and and the teragoid. Well, basically, you're entering just posterior to that ruffet, and that'll get, that that is your sort of landmarks in that area. And I think I'm, I might have another picture there that'll help you. But uh, the the other thing that uh, someone asked, I think, that was so important was, what if you don't have any dental instruments? How are you going to you know, take a take a tooth out. And I, that's a, that's a great question. And my answer would be, I'm not. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you truthfully. Uh, you know, I I've even had little ones with like deciduous teeth, and and they've been a little loose, and 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 it it's a little bit traumatic just to go in with a piece of gauze sometime and think you're going to hold it and and have it come right out. It sometimes doesn't happen that way. So. So I, I think topical anesthetics are important. I think local anesthesia is, is, is essential. And I, I think that uh, you need you need to somehow get the minimum dental equipment to, to sort of go along and, and, and do that. And, and that means really you need some kind of a flashlight or something to, to help you to get some visibility. Uh, you, you certainly need your gloves and... Uh, there, there are upper and lower uh, forceps. And, and just to, to mention upper and lower forceps, this is a... This, you see, this this sort of looks like an L, doesn't it? That, that's telling you that that's a lower forcep. And and lower forceps sort of look like they're, they're, they come off sort of at a right angle. This one, if you look at it, looks more like an S. You know what I mean? It has a little a little different curvature to it if you look at this one versus sort of this one. Do you see the difference? S is because it's superior. It goes up. L is for lower. <laughs> so they did that for me. <laughs> I can't remember things too well. Anyhow, uh, but that's that. That's actually the help when you look at those... Uh, forceps as to, to what forceps you know, you, you, you sort of need. This is a periosteal elevator. Uh, those of you who have done some, uh, some bone surgery realize what a periosteal elevator is, and it's used exactly for that, to elevate the periosteum. But in, in these cases where you have a pointed, uh, and I'll, I'll let you come up and take a look at these, very pointed uh, periosteal elevator, you go around the gingival cuff of the tooth, to sort of reflect that tissue away so that one, you can get down better on the root, and the other thing, you're not going to tear the tissue in the process of, of removing it. So that, that's always a, a, good, a good idea to do that, and, and one end of the periosteal elevator is very, is very pointed for that purpose, to sort of go around that area and to sort of get, get some reflection of that, of that tissue. Uh, one thing I like to do um, and I notice, uh, you know, a lot of people don't do that, but I, I like to use a, a bite block, particularly in the in the lower jaw. I, I never, I hate to say never, but I never take a tooth out on, on anyone, child or adult, without using a bite block in the lower jaw, because it helps stabilize that lower jaw. The lower jaw, you know, is is has. Yes, the other side, because the the lower jaw is the mobile unit. It is the one where you have the hardest trouble trying to hold it steady and keep it open at the same time. So if you bite down on this, you stabilize the temporomandibular joint as well. So now you have closed, you've stabilized the jaw. So one, the patient is not as aware of the pressure that you're putting on and taking it out. And two, you have stabilized the temporomandibular joint, so you're not as apt to sublux the joint uh, by, by, you know, moving the jaw. and putting, you, you have a lot of lever arm on this. You're, you're standing out here, you have the tooth, and you're able to put quite a bit of pressure on the jaw, quite a bit of pressure on the temporomandibular joint. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's always better that when I was in practice, obviously, I mean, the patients I used to get were either so sick no one wanted to do anything on them or they had extensive bridge work and all kinds of things and you had to be very careful of the adjacent teeth and everything. And so uh, a lot of the the things that we do um, in, in our practice were to help preserve and do no harm and make sure. And so even in developing countries where people are very hesitant uh, about having things done. If you let them bite on that, that stabilizes it. They'll feel more comfortable in having it done. And, and it, it sure does help, help a lot. Uh, and, and, again, that, that periosteal elevator is helpful. There are also different beaks on forceps. Some are rounded. Some are serrated. Some are more anatomical. Someone who does not take teeth out often or does not like to take teeth out like myself, uh, probably is better in using a serrated uh, instrument. The reason for the serrations is that it, it grips the tooth better, so you get less movement of the instrument on the tooth surface, and you're less liable to break the tooth. This is a for, a force that's a forceps. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a serrated sort of anatomic tip, and you'll be able to see those over there uh, and, and what you're doing is you're creating a bit of a lever effect when you're when you're taking teeth out, and you can see that basically uh, it takes a little force at the end of that long lever to to allow the the tooth to come out. Now I'm going to tell you something that that probably is a little bit uh, <laughs> unlike didn't any. Do, didn't do very well with this yeah. Uh, You know, all of them came out, it looks like. Anyhow, uh, he became very attached to his tooth, by the way. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, you know, it sounds like in these situations that uh, what you do is pull a tooth. That is absolutely wrong. You push a tooth. Okay? If I want to take that tooth out, I am not going to pull it. I'm going to actually push it. And I will show you why that's so important. You push it up, and you know anatomically that this tooth has sort of a rounded conical root. I push it up as far as I can and rotate it a little bit because it has a conical root, And and it will come out without any great force or anything. But the, you take a tooth out so that you can remove the last third of the root. If you get the last third, I can almost guarantee you, you got the whole tooth. Okay? So that's what what, what you're trying to do. And remember, if you pull it down, if you start to move the tooth down, and then you start to to, to wiggle it, you've changed the whole fulcrum, haven't you? you want the fulcrum to be right at the end of that root because you're taking this whole root out. You're not just taking the, you know, the the two-thirds. So by doing that, now all your force is this way, even if you're luxating and you're pivoting on what? The very end of the root. And once that's loosened enough and you've moved it either figure eight-wise or back and forth, then you can take it out. You don't... A, you know, pull a tooth, you push a tooth. And that goes whether it's the lower tooth or an upper tooth. If you don't want to break roots, that's the way to do it. And so even when we put the tooth uh, in the long axis now, we're, we're looking at that. You notice how that forcep is in the long axis of the tooth and even the, even the upper ones that we use in the front. That's in the long axis of the tooth. So we're not putting forces at an angle. We're lining the forcep up with the long axis of the tooth, and, and then in the anterior area, from cuspid to cuspid, uh, in, the, in the maxilla, it's a conical root, so you can push up all the way and rotate, and, that, and that's what you, you really want to do. And you need to put some strength into that. You need to have some tooth to grip. And I'll show you some forceps which allow you a little more access to, to that area, but, but basically you, you want to support even the maxilla and keep the forceps in the long axis of the tooth. And and basically what you're trying to do here is you're trying to luxate that tooth in such a way that you're expanding the bone adjacent to it. Because sometimes the roots are divergent and they're wider than actually the base uh, or the conical portion of the central portion of the tube. So you really need to to do that. You really need to widen that space. And as you see up in there, you you widen the space and then you, you actually put some traction. So where is the first pressure? Apically. And then luxating, okay, from side to side one side, then the other, don't get in a rush. Mm-hmm. And then once it's loose, you can easily deliver it. But the apical pressure is, is the probably the most important kind of it's a, thing the left to remember. Is just rocking, not rotating. Yes, in, in posterior teeth particularly, I mean, if you're very familiar with dental anatomy, you can take it some you can take some choices and, and take some liberties. But for the most part, if you're not, it's, it's a it's a luxation from palatal area to buckle from palatal to buckle and delivery is buckle because of the fact that the palatal bone is much denser so you, when you get movement and spread of the plates your your spread is going to be greater on the buckle aspect so that will give you a, a, an extra help as you as you make a delivery Now, uh, sometimes you forget to push the way you should, or you may find out that uh, there, there, is a, there is a portion of the tooth left, as they say. And sometimes late on a Friday afternoon, I would get a call in the office, I got my part, but your part is still there. So uh, what, what I would need to do is go and sort of take a root out And, and, you know, this is a a critical thing because it can be a uh, multi-rooted tooth and it can be up near the maxillary sinus. So it is extremely important to understand that as you do that, what your effort is is to use a very fine root pick and to try and go up adjacent to the root. Do you notice how you're doing that? And gently sort of rotating that root. I have seen some of our residents, and I've had it happen to me as well, put very little pressure on, on a retained root in the maxilla. Gone. He said, it disappeared. I said, yes, it did. <laughs> and it's in the maxillary sinus. So that's not a pretty picture. And, uh, and sometimes we, t- we talk at the board exams. You know, we, we get into these esoteric discussions about osteotomies and all that kind of thing, and uh, I, we we talk about, well, what about this? You're doing this procedure, and you're putting pressure here. All of a sudden, the tooth disappears. I mean, what would you do? And, right. and, 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 <laughs> and the oral surgeon took the, taking the exam, he said, boy, I never thought you'd ask me that, but he said, I'd have a laundry problem. <laughs> so, so that happens sometime, and, and when it does, you know, we, we want to be prepared. And I have said, if you're not experienced in removal of, of teeth from the antrum, don't, do not try. Do not make that hole larger. Sometimes it can just sneak under what we call the Schneiderian membrane. So it hasn't even perforated through that area. And you opening that area up will make a chronic oral antral fistula. So it's not something you'd, you'd want to do. The, the thing that you may want to do is to get them on some antibiotics and to give them sinus precautions, and I've, I've sort of mentioned that. Uh, it's, it's important because most likely the tooth you're taking out has been infected, so there will be some maybe infected tissue in, in the root area. But I have seen some of these cases. And the other thing is they're very difficult sometimes to get out, even if you have some x-rays to, to look at it. Uh, so that is a difficult thing. The other thing is that root can go elsewhere. It can go in the floor of the mouth. Remember sometimes we looked at those uh, pictures that we had over here and, the, and where the lingual aspect, I mean it's, it's sort of nasty looking. Uh, and, and that root right through the lingual plate into the floor of the mouth. Very, very difficult. Or sometimes back in the pterygoid area, a wisdom tooth, and, and something is lost. And, and uh, what you need to do then is realize that that is a loose tooth in a fatty space, like in the pterygoid space, and very, very difficult to retrieve because as you go back, the fat moves around, so does this, and, and, and you've got a very, very difficult job ahead. So antibiotics... And sometimes allowing, and and sometime uh, and sometime, uh, you know, if that if something like that happens, getting someone who has more experience and allowing it to fibrose a little bit after they've been on antibiotics makes it much more easy to get it out. But it's a very serious kind of situation. And and here you can see exactly what we were talking about. If you if you slip with that. Sort of elevator that you're trying to, to take that out. And the elevator gets on the sort of the meat of the root. It's a very easy thing, and there's a very thin uh, shell of bone that will allow that root to go, you know, right up into the sinus. If that happens, know that you're not the first. Don't feel that bad. Get the person on antibiotics. Uh, put them on sinus precautions so that that area. Sinus, don't stifle any sneezes. Don't blow your nose forcefully. Don't suck on any straws, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, when we do, we actually remove a root, we do a call to a luck procedure. We open the sinus area from, a, from another area, we actually enter in, uh, identify the root, take it out, often with a suction, keep the hole as small as we can, suture that area up, and sometimes we'll actually suture the socket up as well to make sure we don't get a, a permanent opening. That develops from the sinus to the to the oral cavity, so that, that would cause a, the need to, to do another surgical procedure if it didn't heal primarily. Like, let's say you're on a short-term mission. You're in Africa. You're obviously since you're doing it, there's no dentist there because the dentists are doing exactly. it. Exactly. So yes. What do you do then? You don't. I mean, you don't have any of those resources you just mentioned. So the best thing is if let's say you have a root that's left there and you say. I don't think so. That may be a great judgment on your part. Uh, you're not I- experienced in doing that. Sometimes you've gotten you the majority. You you, you've got the majority of a tooth out, which which may bring a much more relief than you than you realize. Uh, and but you don't feel qualified or to do that. Put the patient on antibiotics uh, for you know. And and I've seen. Roots, And I think we all have on x-rays of people that have had retained roots in there. And and it just, the bone heals in over it. It's the Lord's provision. Uh, So uh, do no harm. And the best thing we can do in those kind of situations is, you know, you might even tell the patient beforehand, you know, I'm going to try and get you as comfortable as I can. Sometimes, you know, the whole tooth doesn't come out. If we, if we end up with with you having a portion of the tooth left, I'm going to put you on antibiotics, and I'm going to try and help you through this. But it's possible that that infection could recur, and if it does, we'll have to have somebody help you. Now, what's the chance? If that recurs, and there's a little breakdown in the bone area from the infection, the root may be a lot easier to get out. So all in all, you, I mean, you haven't done a great deal of harm. I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't advocate leaving roots uh, but, but if you had to do that you know, it would it it, 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 that's it and it wouldn't be a bad it wouldn't be a bad judgment and, and if you know someone else is there to help you or you know if someone who could see the patient, you know that, that would be the way to go. and we, you're without x-rays remember in, in, in Africa or, or Liberia, which is in Africa or, or you know some areas of China, Inner Mongolia, Afghanistan. I mean the infrastructure is gone there. so You're helping them is a wonderful thing, and we don't want to do any harm. And so that's the easiest, I think the most effective sort of way to do it. We want to get alongside of the tooth to take out roots. We sort of rotate, uh, you know, that elevator. You'll see some elevators there. Uh, That's what an elevator is. It's not an Otis elevator. It's (laughs) It's a regular elevator. And and then there are other times, and I know most of you have experienced that, where someone has an infection in a tooth and and the infection has been there for a long time. The bone gets very dense. Uh, The tooth gets very brittle. The nerve of the tooth is is dead. So the nerve of the tooth will give moisture to the tooth and allow the tooth to remain somewhat uh, uh, sort of non brittle but once it gets very brittle and the nerve is gone, now you have a difficult job often of removing it because it's like removing a pretzel in cement because the jawbone is very, very dense. And now you're trying to get this root out that wants to break every time you, you touch it. So you have to actually go in there surgically and take some bone away right over the root. And, the, and when we do that, we we actually take a drill. We reflect the tissue, as we have, we take a drill and take some bone away right over the tooth. And I even have a hand chisel that I just use to plane the bone right off of that area of the front surface of the tooth or use a drill to remove it. And that way we can get enough of the root structure so that we can get a, an instrument in the back of it and. And sort of lift that lift that out. It 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 is not an, an easy thing to do, but it's one of those things where you need to gently work an elevator and take some bone away, so that you can do it without without a lot of a lot of problem. We we even get to the point where there're multi-rooted teeth, and and really it's divide and conquer, where that tooth might have three roots on it, and we might section it initially and separate the roots. And then take the roots out individually, because there's not enough tooth. Maybe this this tooth that looks like there is, but often we'll do that when there's not enough tooth to hold on to. It's it's just all broken down. This is getting to a little bit more advanced kind of uh, of, of surgeries, uh, but it's something that it, it would be great. Go on a trip and say, you know, I'd, I'd like to work with the oral surgeon here and, and learn a few techniques so that I can do this. In my home country, you know, with a little more assurance, and that's that, that's one way, uh, sort of that you that you could do that. And and so it's is that an upper or lower forceps? Lower. lower. Gosh, you guys are so that's a that's a lower forceps. And again, in the lower jaw, we want to go parallel to the long axis of that tooth. And what's that? Bite block. Bite block right. And the bite block is very important on the, on the other side, stabilizing the jaw, keeping the temporomandibular joint there and protecting it. It's, it's, a great, it's a great way to go. And that's what that sort of looks like, using the bite block in there. There is an instrument called a cow horn, and it looks exactly like a cow horn. It, it has those sharp beaks that come around like that, and, and that's one of those instruments that's great for posterior uh, teeth mandibular molars, where they have two roots and you actually sort of pump or, or get those sharp beaks to come in between those two roots and then luxate and then remove. But that's a, that, that is an excellent instrument because molars are very difficult to remove. You know what they're called, double grinders. So those are the, those are the tough ones. And, and the cowhorn. you'll see the cow horn over there, and then when roots are left, we use elevators, and, and this is, these are flag elevators, or we call them uh, uh, east-west elevators, because they can if you take one root out and you still have another one left, you can actually go through the bone in between the roots to lift the other root out with, with, those, with those kind of elevators. And, and that's basically the way, the way it is. You, you can see how that elevator is resting sort of on bone and and used to sort of pick or elevate that root that's left in that that socket area. And by doing that, you either can lift it in that position or, if necessary, even go in between the two roots in the jaw and and get the position and lift it out. And that's good because you you won't get a lot of swelling when you do that. You don't have to reflect a lot of soft tissue you can do it right through the socket area and just take that and just take that root out. So sometimes we do have to section a tooth and like I said we, we need that drill and we section it down between the roots and take a little bone away. And that allows us to take those roots out separately. Uh, and, and that's something you may not not want to get involved in. This is a, a an example of some granulation tissue that is around uh, an area of chronic infection. So, you know, when you when you see that kind of area in, a, in an infected tooth, you know that that really that's uh, you know clearly the, a tooth that's that's been infected, and and it, it's not unusual to see patients in, in a great deal of discomfort and a great deal of swelling. And if you look at, at the situation there, you'd say, "My goodness, this is." You know, a, a case with very bad dentition. That patient has a parotitis, <laughs> not a not a, a dental infection. So it, it's very important in our exams and so forth to look at some of the differential diagnosis. And I put that some of those things down there. What do we need to think about when we're thinking about facial pain? And 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 how would we sort of look at that? You know, uh, someone at this age, I'd expect it to be a suppurative paratyphus. In other words, you could milk out some some fluid out of that. But if it was a young person, what might it be? Mumps, and and that's not suppurative. So you you may not get any suppuration, but you'd still see the swelling, and not quite the inflammation that, that you'd see in a suppurative case. Uh, and and or you might see a situation where there's some Infection in the floor of the mouth and swelling, and that's from a sialolith. That's not from an infected tooth. So that if if someone has obstruction of a salivary gland, and and they, they can have both infection and swelling, but it's not dental oriented. So we we start to think about that, and we can also milk that area out in the submandibular area, so that we see suppuration more more suppuration coming out. So from the dental standpoint, we need uh, a a needle driver. You need a a blade. You need some mirrors to look at uh, and uh, sort of an explorer. And and we have some there, some periosteals. Always use a 3-0 gut uh, in case you need to place a gut. That's an easy uh, thing to put in and it's going to dissolve. So 3-0 gut is is a, is a good alternative for you because uh, usually our length of stay is is not long. But upper and lower forceps will help a great deal. Some of the elevators, I've listed those right on that list for you, so you'll have an idea. Sterilization is always a concern. Uh, And uh, Sidex Plus now is often being taken off of uh, your, your shipments, and, and the airlines don't want you to, to bring SIDEX along, but the one thing that you can bring is a pressure cooker. And this, this pressure cooker is a great autoclave. Uh, it, you, you can even flash clave with it. It has an extra weight to increase the pop-off pressure, and, uh, and, and if you are interested in, in using that kind of a, of a mechanism, it is a, it is a super way to go. And uh, you can see the pop off valve has that separate weight. We, we put that on, and, and basically, when that starts to pop off a little bit under pressure, you've got 250 pounds pressure in there, and you leave it for 20 minutes to 30 minutes, and it's sterile. So it's not uh, what we call uh, high level disinfectant. And that's what happens with Side X Plus unless you leave it in 10 hours, it's still high-level disinfectant. It really takes care of HIV, and it takes care of a lot of things, but tuberculosis, spore, and other things it does not take care of. So it is not the best way to go. It is maybe satisfactory. I I, I would even question whether it's satisfactory, because anything that that you use that that penetrates the tissue, that, that allows bleeding to occur, you need to to use a pressure cooker, and, and that's really the best thing you can do. And, and then under this little trick, uh, Dorothy thought of that. She, uh, she said, you know, we need to get enough water in here sometimes so we can do. So, so Dorothy, uh, I always tell Dorothy, I said, don't give me the instrument I asked for. Give me the one I need. So she she put uh, uh, you know at first some like amalgam carriers underneath to hold that up, but now it was uh, uh, tuna fish cans that have a, that are empty and have a hole in them, so that you can raise this bottom up high enough so you can put all the the instruments in there, and and really you can use it. You can pile them up as high as you want, and and they'll they'll be. St- You're you never put a higher level of water than the top of the area. You don't want your instruments underwater. You're steam sterilizing. If you put the instruments underwater, they don't get the same sterile sterile effect because the pressure and the uh, you know and the steam is the hottest part of the the whole thing. So that's what you really what you really want to do and and that's what you need. I'd be happy to help you with some of those kind of things if you have that problem, when, and and you'll see some some people with some help that uh, that really get involved with some difficult surgeries with uh, in in developing countries. And and we've had a number of docs that 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 have come, and many many dentists today don't don't take out many teeth. So when they go into developing countries, they are really challenged. Because of that, and it it is a a, a tricky kind of thing. So, uh, let's. uh, If if there's anything I can do, I'm going to be around all all week and be happy to help you in any way that I can. So, don't hesitate to.